All right, we're going to go ahead and get started with the uh, adult lesson. I want everyone get seated. All right, let's go ahead and get started in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One God, Amen. Good afternoon, everyone. How's everyone doing? Did you guys have a wonderful Thanksgiving, hopefully? Um, so um, what I'm doing is I'm continuing uh, part two and finishing off uh, the lesson on Thanksgiving. And I started last week talking about that there's five aspects that I want us to reflect upon when we think about Thanksgiving. We covered the first three, which were Thanksgiving is a life of prayer. Thanksgiving is a commitment to sacrifice, and that Thanksgiving is a proof of faith. As we continue to the last two aspects, I want us to keep a question in mind, because you will start to see this progression of this question. And that is, do we still hold strong to our convictions, our faith, our trust in Christ when everything starts to get stripped away? Which we talked about last week that it will eventually happen. And so we realize that the more we begin to live a lifestyle of thanksgiving, the more Christ will strip away our possessions, our materials. So he wants us to be what he is. And that is be inconvenienced, be struggle, be hurt, be nothing to do with this world, be nothing here on earth, so you are everything to me. Be a nobody to humanity, so you are the only begotten child to the Father. And this is the whole purpose of being detached. And it's like what Archie said earlier today, we are dead to the world. That's the whole purpose of thanksgiving. The more we give thanks, the more things will be taken away from us that's materialistic. And we ended with the paradox, one of many paradoxes we have of our faith, and that is living a life of thanksgiving is living a life of no ownership. But a life of a poor beggar pleading to God for crumbs to fall from his master's table. And that's what the focus is on. So our fourth aspect is thanksgiving is a matter of choice. It's all about perspective. Okay, so there are always two choices or two states of mind with every circumstance. And just like love and happiness, thanksgiving is a decision. It's a choice. You decide which mindset you want to be in at that present moment. Now, of course, it's much easier said than done. We're going to go over some obstacles, some struggles that we run into when we try to do this. And I want to start with an example. What is the environmental difference between a monastery and a prison. What's the environmental difference between a monastery and a prison? Nothing. They're exactly the same. How, they, how did they get to that environment? That's a very different story. One is by choice, one is by force. But the actual environment is exactly the same. And in fact, it is your inner attitude that will reflect the environment, not the other way around. A monk who forgets or loses his focus on gratitude 
can change his monastic cell into a prison cell. He wouldn't be able to stand being alone. A criminal who focuses on a life of repentance can transform his prison cell into a sanctuary. So the only difference between a monk and a criminal is the inner attitude they have towards God. And that's us. Sometimes when we are uh, left alone to praise God by ourselves quietly, we can't stand it. It's hard for us to be alone with God sometimes. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is that focus going to be on? Okay? So the environment is the same, but the difference is the internal attitude of the individual. We can choose the spirit of gratitude or the spirit of gripe. But the beauty is you always have a choice, and that choice is always ours to decide. That's the beauty of our free will. We get to decide what we want to do at that moment, present time. So the environment or any situation around us, this is just one example, has no bearing. It does not matter what the environment is. It is our perspective in the moment that decides the environment, not the environment that decides our spirit. So we have control of our environment depending on our state of mind. So what are some obstacles that, that hinder us from thinking this way? There are several. One is our emotions. Our emotions have a tendency to get the better of us, and that is why we cannot rely on ourselves. When we're angry, bitter, hurt, what happens? In that present moment, we say things we don't mean. We say things like, why should I thank God? What has God done for me lately? Look at the situation I'm in because of God. We say things like this, or, we're at, or sometimes we're thinking this. Right? We have nothing but a, but a list of complaints in our heads. All of these things are going wrong because of God. And what do you notice about the complaints in our heads? It all comes back to the focus. What are we focusing on when we start to make complaints to God? Self, ego, pride, like what Archie said earlier today. All the sins fall from the fall. Ego, pride. Adam and Eve, they believe they can live a life without God. Us, when it's about self, God is out of the picture. He's out of the equation. So complaining is what we believe, and this is important, that this is our truth at that moment. We believe this. When we start to complain, we believe that that is our truth. That situation is because of God. But it's not the reality. It's a false truth. The adversary has this deceitful way to create false truths in our heads. And he's been doing this since the beginning of time. He is not, a, he is not very creative. He fell because of pride. He made Adam and Eve be, fell because of pride. And we fall because of pride. 
It's the same story over and over again. He makes us focus on our self-predicament, us, and the worldly circumstance. He takes the focus off God and he says, look at the world, look at you, that's your reality. But we know that he is a father of lies. With Adam and Eve, what did he say if you eat of this tree? You will not die. In Genesis 2, he said you will surely die. And then in in Genesis 3, he says you will not die. Complete contradiction. Very blatant. And he says if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. Go back to Genesis 1. What does he say? You are in the image and likeness of God. So what did Satan do? He twists the words to make you forget who you are and who you belong to. He gives you a false identity. He makes you forget that you are the child of God. And this is what he did to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had it good. They were in the garden, walking with God daily, in the cool breeze of the day. They had it good. And then what does the devil say? Hmm. I'm jealous, I'm envy, and that's why we say in the liturgy, sin entered the world through the envy. And what does he say? You're not the child of God. You are not like God, but we are. So we have to separate the false Truth from the real reality truth. And that's why Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When we go back to God, that becomes our truth, not what the world tells us. So Satan distracts us on thanking God for the graces and truths of our identity in him to focusing on the environment around us. And so what if we changed it now? Instead of saying things like, why should I thank God? Thank you, God, for so much. What has God done for me lately? God, you endlessly pour your graces upon us. Look at my situation that God put me in. Look at the situation I put myself in. God, help me to figure out to go back to the light. Help me to go back to you. So it's all perspective. It's how are we dealing with the situation at hand? Is it through just me or is it through the source? That's what it comes down to. It's all about our mentality, our mindset at that present moment. And it's difficult. I'm not saying this is easy, but we have to separate what the world tells us to what God is telling us. Another obstacle is expectations. Sometimes we have a certain expectation of our life and of our situation, of others, and ourselves. We have the idea that when things are good, we feel that this is the norm because it meets our expectation. We have a good marriage, a good home life, great children, we have a great profession, Everything around us is doing well. And, you know, because it's doing well, instead of giving things, sometimes we are content. That's what we expect. Our life should be going in this progression. But what if 
we looked at every moment of that as a grace of God, that we shouldn't have a good job. We shouldn't have things that are given to us. It's not guaranteed. There are many people out there that aren't married, that can't have kids. All of those are graces. So it's all depending on how we are looking at our lives in every moment. But when something goes wrong, we grumble and complain. And we assume that this is not the norm, so we are angered, frustrated, and unhappy. So we have to go back to what God tells us. He tells us something very important. He redefines what is good. He says, all things are good to those who love God. That's the good. Your job means to an end. Your marriage, trying to get to heaven together. All of these things are trying to remind you of what the true good is, and that is you love God. Can that ever change? What does he say about the separation of, of, of God's love to us? It will never happen. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So if God is love, and we love him, that's the only good you need. Everything else is extra. Do you ever think about that? If we know that God loves us, and it's unconditional, it'll never change, and we love him, that's the good. Everything else in our lives is just extra graces and blessings from God. That's the, that's the true definition of good. Some examples, USA, biggest consumer of antidepressants. Yet, we have the greatest amount of resources in the world. How do we explain that? Israelites. God delivers them out of slavery, spoke with them directly, gives them a phenomenal leader, takes care of their needs for 40 years, and they still grumble, complain, and commit idolatry. How do we explain this? And I think this quote says it best. The happiest people are not the ones who have the most of things, but rather the ones who make the most of what they have. I'll say that again. The happiest people are not the ones who have the most of things, but rather the ones who make the most of what they have. It's all perspective. Everything that you can purchase and buy are actually the least things we should be concerned of. The most meaningful, purposeful things we have in our lives are absolutely free. Happiness, love, joy, thanksgiving. These are all things that we can decide to do in our lives. It's all mindset. Another obstacle, our priorities. Sometimes our priorities get mixed up. We think backwards. We tend to say things like, when this happens, then I will do this. We give God an ultimatum. When I get that promotion, that raise, when he or she apologizes to me, when God delivers me out of this situation, then I will do the following. 
So when, fill in the blank, then I will be happy. Be thankful. Start to believe. Have trust. Have faith, etc. So we expect to receive our personal wants, desires, and passions first, and then we will thank God after the fact. How do we flip that script? How do we correct that? How do we correct that? We go back to what he tells us. First, Thess- First Thessalonians 5. Here's what he says. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. So how about we say the following? We say things like, regardless of the outcome, I will start, I will believe. I will have trust. I will be obedient. I will be thankful. Whether I get the promotion or not, whether I get that raise or not, whether that person apologizes to me does not matter. What matters is, is what? is I don't lose my faith. Okay? So we are always, always thankful, regardless of the outcome. Don't expect anything. Have a zero expectation, because everything you ever need is the love of God. Everything else doesn't matter the results. I love this quote. Stop telling God how big our problems are and start telling our problems how big our God is. Who are we giving the attention to? Where is our focus? Is it on the problems or is it on God? And I like the word big because multiply over a dozen times in Scripture it says, this, it says magnify the Lord. What does magnify mean? Make God bigger. Because everyone has problems, but, are, are, uh, but what are you deciding to focus on? What is magnified in our lives? Make God bigger by bringing him closer to you. So if we take something like this, what happens when this is really far away? It looks tiny, right? Whenever you see the moon, do you ever do this to the moon? You can squash the moon, right? You can make the moon disappear. Right? But what happens if I bring this closer to me? It gets mammoth. It gets huge. It's all I can see. If we're on the moon, we're like a what? We're like a, an insect. We're like an ant. We're a, part of, we're a dust particle. Right? So if we make God so close to us, that's all we can see. We have no peripheral vision. We have no concept of what's happening outside of God. We don't know what's happening in the world. We don't know what's happening in the news. We don't know what's happening with everyone else. We're not gossiping. All we can see is God because God is so big, okay? And the bigger God becomes to us, you're gonna see all the problems you thought you have start to subside. They start to become numb. It's like when you take aspirin. What happens when you take aspirin and let's say you have multiple aches you have a headache, you have a stomach ache, you have, a back, you, have a, you have back pain. Which one is the aspirin gonna go to? 
the one that hurts the most, the one you're focused on. So if God is our main focus, all of a sudden I don't feel the pain. They're subsided. They're, they're numb. I don't feel anything. I don't see it. Out of sight, out of mind. That's why I love what St. John the Baptist said, and Archie said this earlier. He must increase, and I must decrease. More of God, less of me. So the solution is not getting rid of the problems. That's not the solution. They are not going anywhere, and in fact, I would even say, they will become more apparent and more abundant as we keep focusing on it. The problems get bigger in our heads. The solution is getting close to God because of the problems. Why does God allow certain things, certain obstacles? An example is when you're driving and you're going, to, you're going through a road of perdition. You're on your way to a downward spiral. And God puts an obstacle there, a physical con- like obstruction. What is he trying to do? He's trying to curb you to his direction. He's trying to change your direction to him. And we don't see this. We're going to do what? We're going to take a hand. We're going to try to break that obstacle. I want to go down this road no matter what. Regardless of the problems, I'm, I'm going to break through and I'm going to drive recklessly because I'm right. Ego comes up again. While in reality, he's trying to what? Force you in the straight and narrow path. Back to him. An example I, I, I constantly think about is fasting. As we know, we started today. Okay, we're, going, we're supposedly starting today. Um, and, you know, my whole life, and I think m- many of us can uh, have the same story, is, you know, when we're eating, we're constantly looking at the ingredients, looking at what it has, what it doesn't have. And I can, after church today, go eat at an all-you-can-eat sushi Pat myself on the back, good job, I fasted. I ate all I wanted, all the sushi I wanted until I was glutton and I feel like I'm gonna explode. I'm totally full. Good job, you fasted, congratulations. But what if fasting has a very different meaning? That the church in its wisdom is trying to tell us something very different. And that is maybe when we're gonna go somewhere to eat, regardless of what the food is, Suffer a little. Be hungry. Be inconvenienced. Don't fill your belly automatically. Have a little bit of hunger pains. And then the next day, maybe push it back a little bit further. Whatever each one is capable of doing. But maybe, just maybe, the point of fasting is to take the desire away from food regardless of what the food is, is to remove us from the desire of food and to change our focus and attention on him. Strip away the materialistic need for food. Yes, we need to eat. But what happens over time when we're starving constantly, every morsel of food starts to look good. Everything is appetizing. And I just want to fill my belly like the prodigal son did. I just want to fill my belly and move on. Food is not the intention anymore. 
It's not the focus. I want to, I'm going to say something, and I want us to focus on this. It says, God loved us so much that he decided his choice to create us in his image and likeness, and through his grace, he granted us life undeservingly. God loved us so much that he decided he chose to create us in his image and likeness, and through his grace, he granted us life undeserving. And the reason I'm saying this, and I want us to think about the reality of who we are. And this is the term humble. Humble comes from the term hummus, which is of the earth. That's who we are. We are of the earth. Now, here's what it means. The realization of who we are, nothing. Right? What does it say in Genesis 2-7? He breathed life into us. But before that, what were we? Dust to the ground. So we go from dust to a living being filled with his spirit. And what do we truly deserve? Nothing. So we are nothing. We don't deserve nothing. And then all of a sudden, how do we give thanks now? Knowing this, it becomes a very sincere, desirable need to say thank you. It is the doctrinal truth of our faith. Now, I don't want to mistake low self-esteem with humility. Those are two very different things. Low self-esteem is, I believe I'm nothing even with God. But we know that our intrinsic value, being the child of God, is everything. That's the difference between humility and low self-esteem. I love myself because I'm the child of God, not because of my ego and pride, not vain and not, not vainglory. And we've heard of this, fake it till you make it. Heard of this before? Fake it till you make it? Psychologically, there's some truth to this. Psychologists say when you physically say with your lips, what you say with your lips has an impact on what you think in your mind. So sometimes when we're just randomly giving praises and we don't even think about what we're saying, but you keep saying it over and over, what happens? You subconsciously start thinking about it over time. It starts to go in your dreams. You start to wake up in the morning and say, why, why do I have this hymn in my, in my mind? So what we physically say with our lips has an impact on what you think in your mind. How much more thankful would we be if we envision Christ's death in our minds daily? It's all about our mindset. And sometimes I think, why does God value us so much? I think about this. Why does he value us? We have a pretty bad track record. We mess up a lot. Why does he value us? He says, therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, but do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Even the purpose of why he values us 
is the love of God. Because it pleases him. It goes full circle. Why we exist, why we breathe, why, we, why he decided to make us his children, his love. He can't help himself. It's his nature. It's who he is. And he wants us to be that way. That is to be in our nature to just love. Thanksgiving pleases the heart of our Father. If we can only see the heart of God, if you ever think about this, if we can see the heart of God, thanksgiving and praise would never leave our lips. And we see this. Who only sees the heart of God constantly? The angels. And what do angels do all day long? Praise God. And sometimes I think we forget how emotionally loving our God is. If we go to Luke 17, and we think of the 10 lepers, and the 10 lepers come, and he says, go show yourself to the priest. And on their way, they're cured. Of the 10, how many come back? One. One comes, falls on his knees, praises God, thanks God, And how does Christ react? This is our benevolent father. This is how he responds. Weren't there 10 of you? What happened to the other nine? I love you. I cured you. Do you not wanna, do you not wanna see me now? How how thankful are we when we get a really extravagant gift from somebody? We're super thankful. But they just got cured from their life. I love you. I wanted to cure you. Cure you. Do you not want to do the same? Do you not want to come back and give me a hug? Be thankful like a father and a son? Do you not want to show appreciation and gratitude? And then he says something else. He says, but this foreigner, this Samaritan did it. In other words, the one that came back doesn't know the laws, the tradition, the scriptures. It wasn't one of, it wasn't his, the, the what, the Israelites. It wasn't his chosen people. It was one that just understands common courtesy. This one who knows, because it's the desire of his heart, how much more should the chosen people know? They know the scripture. They understand this. They know who I am. Okay, so the last one we're going to go over is genuine thanksgiving results in joy. So that's the end result. How do we get to constant joy in our lives? Regardless of the obstacles, how do we achieve joy as often as possible? Because that is our faith. Many people come to church and they want to be persecuted. Look at me, I'm terrible, I'm awful. But what does Christ say? I took care of that for you. I am the crucifixion. But then after the crucifixion, it's what? The resurrection. That is our faith, is the resurrection. Feel sorry, yes, apologize, and then move on. Be joyous, because we live in the resurrection, not in the crucifixion. We don't beat ourselves over, because that's Satan trying to not finish the story. 
Focus on the crucifixion. Focus on you dying all the time. So you're never happy. You're never joyous. You never want to give thanks. But that's not our faith. Our faith is, no, the story is complete. Our focus is on the resurrection. Um, So the next question is, why do we give thanks? Does God need our praises? Is God a glory hog? Is he insecure? Is he like the Godfather we have to go and kiss his hand? So why does he want these praises? It's the same reason why a father tells his son to say thank you when given something or helping him. Does the father want praise or is he trying to teach his son something greater, bigger? The whole picture. Appreciation, gratitude. He's trying to make us remember that don't forget who you are and who you belong to. Um, Now imagine the following. How excited do we get when an old friend comes to visit us from a faraway place? How much more excited would we get if he had to struggle to reach us? Okay? We get touched when someone from far away has to come and has to go through snow, had to go through some weather condition, and still found a way to meet us. We are so thankful for that person. But uh, let's say he had to suffer. Let's say he had to suffer injuries, insults. What if that person died on the way to see you? Would your gratitude change? Your appreciation be very different? What if it was the president of the United States? What if it was a king? What if it was the creator of the cosmos? Our appreciation would be very, very different when we truly understand the sacrifice that the creator of all things did for us. Makes a very different story. The more we are touched by the sacrifice of God, the more naturally we're going to praise and thank God. We have to be touched by it. And before I get to the last topic, I want to give you... um, some scriptural passages of thanksgiving. If you're interested, it's Psalm 66, Psalm 107, Isaiah 54. Again, that's Psalm 66, Psalm 107, and Isaiah 54. Those will make you feel touched. They're beautiful, beautiful passages. One more. Uh, Psalm 66, Psalm 107, and Isaiah 54. Okay, so the last question. How do we find joy in our troubles, sorrows, and pain? And that's the end result. How do we find joy in the most difficult circumstances in our lives? Some will say, I don't know what to thank God for. Or, I can't think of enough things to thank God for. So what I want to do is I want to go over the first five minutes of our morning routine of just waking up. And I want us to think about this. First thing is, we wake up. Thank you, God, for a temporary death. We say this in the book of hours. Thank you for not making it permanent. I get an extra day to praise God. I open, our, I open my eyes. Thank you, God, for the sense of sight. I sit up. 
Thank you, God, for the ability to hold myself up. Get out of bed. Thank you, God, for a bed to sleep on. You guys realize that we have more wealth and resources than over 97% of the rest of the world. We're our top 3%. Walk to the bathroom. Thank you, God, for the ability to walk. Wash your face. Thank you, God, for fresh, clean, hot water. And let's say you have none of those things. Because we take those things for granted. The first five minutes, I've, what? We can at least count at least a half dozen thank yous. But let's say all of that's taken away from us. We lose everything. We're in a coma. Can we still be thankful? Thank you, God, for our faith. For allowing us to participate in your services. For your redemption, salvation, incarnation. For the church sacraments. For churches. How many churches do we pass along the way to get here? A lot. We're spoiled. For religious freedom to go to church without persecution. For choosing us to come into existence. For choosing me to be his precious child. To be a part of the divine family. You get the idea. So a person who is thankful for their health will not be disappointed when it fails because he has noticed how long he has had his good health for, for to begin with. In fact, he will continuously be thankful until death, even during his bad health years. We don't appreciate it until it's gone. Rather, we should always appreciate it when we have it so it is not a shock when it's gone. When we constantly have a state of thanksgiving, it will carry us through the tough storms in our lives. If man lives the true life of thanksgiving, he would give thanks to God over every breath he respires, every step he walks, every work he does, everything that comes to him. He does not see anything which is not worthy of thanksgiving and says about all what happens to him, it is all for the good. So, God loves to be thanked because all he wants of us is love and that he should be pleased to, to want it is itself an infinite act of love. The reason God wants us to give thanks because he desires our love because he is love. So the whole idea of him wanting us to be, to be thankful is love in itself because God is love. Okay. Uh, this says in 1 Corinthians 4, For who makes you differ from another? And what, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? Here's what he says after this. You are already full. You are already rich. So I'll ask again, how do we find joy in trouble, sorrows, and pain? By remembering who we are and who we belong to. Everything we need, we already have been given from the very beginning of our existence. The more we remember these things, the more we will live a life of thanksgiving. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Giving thanks opens the door of heaven to us. And I'm going to conclude uh, with a quote from the book, The Ladder of Divi uh, Divine Ascent. As is revealed by and in the divine liturgy, the height of true prayer is Eucharist, thanksgiving. This is why the divine liturgy is the central prayer of the Christian. All prayer to be true prayer must be Eucharistic. This certainly means prayer must flow out of a thankful heart. Before it becomes intercession, prayer is first a response, which we talked about, to grace received. A thankful heart is of necessity driven to give thanks. It cannot remain silent, but it must communicate its thankfulness to the source of blessings. May we continuously profess gratitude for God like the angels with our hearts, minds, lips, deeds, and actions. And glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Uh, any questions? Okay, stand up for prayer. Abuna, can you pray for us?